Well, our sermon this morning comes from John chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. John chapter 1 and verse 14. I encourage you to follow along with us as we work our way through this text. We study a number of verses. I think you'll find your ability to follow along uh, enhanced if you have a Bible in your lap. And we'll be continually coming back to the Word of God as is our custom. You'll find in the pew rack in front of you uh, Bibles uh, that you can use. You'll find this text on page 750. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. Please hear now the Word of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me ranks before Me because He was before Me. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask Him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked Him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourselves? He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Let us pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word in which we now can come and consider. We thank you for revealing yourself to us and recording this word for us that thousands of years later we can know you and love you and follow you and worship you because of it. And so help us through your spirit and your word to speak to us and draw us close to you. Please encourage those who need to be encouraged and convict and confront those who need to be confronted. And in all things, glorify yourself through this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There was once a man or boy, I should say, at the age of five who had an ability to play an advanced concerto on the harpsichord. By the age of 10, he had himself composed and published a number of violin sonatas and was playing from memory the best Bach and Handel. By the age of 12, he had composed and conducted his own opera, which was performed before the Austrian queen in Vienna. At that age, the age of 12, he was made the honorary honorary concertmaster of the Salzburg Symphony. By age 35, the year he died, He had written over 48 symphonies, dozens of operas, plus scores of cantatas and operettas, and hymns, 600 works at all. His name, Johannes Chrysostomus Wolfgangus Amadeus Theophilus Mozart. So with a name like that, you're destined for greatness. You're destined to be picked on, but you're also destined for greatness. The tragedy of Mozart's life, however, is that he who... uh, achieved to reach the heights of success and celebrity and wealth, at his death, at age 35, 
had virtually no friends, was himself living in poverty as he had wasted his fortune and was completely forgotten by almost everyone. Even his own widow was indifferent to his burial. He had few and his funeral. And because of a storm, no one went to his gravesite. In fact, when they asked where he was buried, no one knows, even to this day. Perhaps the greatest composer of all time, dead at 35 in an unmarked grave. It is a story, of course, of riches to rats, a story of a reversal of fortune, and these stories abound and abound. We can consider many. Perhaps we can consider an American equivalent, that of William Durant, who was a brilliant businessman and who almost single-handedly created General Motors. The 50 men who joined him in his early days all became millionaires rather quickly by joining with his team. But Durant, because of poor decisions, lost his fortune, lost his company, and eventually declared personal bankruptcy. The last job he had before he died was managing a bowling alley in Flint, Michigan, at that time too poor to purchase one of the million cars that the company he built had made. It is a story, once again, of a reversal of fortune, of riches to rags. But all these stories, and we could go on, I trust, all of them pale in comparison to the perhaps the pinnacle of these type of stories. And, of course, I speak of the story of Christmas. This great story of the reversal of fortune. When we consider, as John tells us in verse 14, and the word became flesh. Of course, we do not understand the glory and, if you will, the wealth and the splendor in which Jesus enjoyed prior to Him becoming a man, but we can, I think, speculate to the splendor of heaven or the adoration of creation or the servants of angels or simply the fellowship of the Father and the Holy Spirit. And all of that, and He laid it aside to be born in Bethlehem, as we have sung this morning a town overrun with people as they crowded back to the village of their forefathers to register. I don't know if you like crowds or new places or confusion or not having any place to stay. I don't know if you like all that when you're about to give birth to your first child. It was, of course, a story of humility and meekness and lowliness. I appreciate Joseph, who I trust tried to make the best of the worst Situation, and we think he found a stable of storage, probably a shallow cave where they kept animals, and there they would have this fateful night. We would do well, I think, to erase from our minds the hallmark picture of the nativity scene with the fresh hay and the warm fire and the clean animals. I used to keep sheep and goats, and the one adjective I would not use to describe them was clean. <laughs> I trust they were surrounded by manure. The ground packed hard by animals, or perhaps even worse, muddied by recent rain. Uh, Perhaps Joseph tried, in fact I trust he did, to find a soft place for his beloved to lie. And there in that night, in that cold and dark cave, the evening air was punctuated by the cries of a woman in labor. We of course don't know how long she labored. um, But like many women who experience their first labor, it is a challenging one. I trust Joseph would have held her hand or perhaps whispered scripture into her ear to give her comfort or cooled her forehead or shooed away animals. I remember when our first baby was born, uh, little Anastasia, we would, of course, go to the hospital. And there a doctor would be there to deliver the child, surrounded by nurses and equipment. And even then, 
there's fear, isn't there? There's trepidation, even in the midst of that. I can't even help but to imagine no doctors or nurses or midwives or interns, not even a mother or a sister, just a frightened teenage girl delivering a baby into the calloused hands of a teenage laborer. The Bible records it rather simply in Luke, doesn't it, when it says, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. If it had gone according to plan, I, I trust it would have taken place back at home in, in Nazareth, and the birth of a son would have been a, a, an occasion for great celebration, great rejoicing. I, I, I trust that they, the proud parents would parade this little boy around. I trust they would call friends and family over to celebrate, perhaps even hire musicians, as was the custom of that day, to bring in the, the, the joy of this new life. But they had no friends to congratulate them. They had no musicians to come and sing and to celebrate. They were isolated and alone. And there she did her best as she swaddled this baby in straps of cloth around his limbs and body. And there they, they played him in a, placed him in a manger, which, which sounds nice. It's a nice word, but it wasn't nice. It was a feed trough. It was probably not a box, but a little space carved out in the side of a cave wall. I trust that Joseph would have cleaned out the section as best as he could, perhaps placing fresh straw, and there he laid the eternal Son of God in a feed trough. It was a story, isn't it, of reversal. One commentator says, you couldn't have chosen a more wretched place to be born than this. You could not have scripted a more humble, poverty-stricken beginning than this one. You see, it's a picture of God's condescension, that he entered a world, a world of darkness, a world of sin, I wonder if there's some symbolism here that we can draw that from this manger, this, this stable, perhaps is a beautiful metaphor for the filth of sinful humanity in which he has entered into, which he has even taken upon himself in order to redeem us. He left the wealth of heaven and chose the rags of humanity. The Word became flesh. And yet, there was one man who saw his greatness. Despite the poverty, despite the plainness, despite the meekness of it all, there was a man named John who saw the greatness in him before he had even taught or before he had performed miracles or before the, the masses flocked to him. This man named John, the last of the old covenant prophets, saw the greatness of Jesus. In fact, he mentions it in verse 27 saying, Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not even worthy to untie. This Christmas season, we've been considering who Jesus is from John chapter 1. And, and today, John the Baptist, or John the Witness, will be a great blessing to us, a great help as we consider who Christ is. In fact, we already saw him a number of weeks ago, didn't we? In verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And he will continue to do so in our text today, bearing witness to Christ and the greatness of him. The question is, do you believe his testimony? Will you believe today this contemporary of Jesus, this old covenant prophet who understood who Christ was, do you believe what he had to say about him, about his greatness? In fact, we see the greatness throughout this text of Jesus. We see, first of all, that Jesus is greater than the greatest. We see, secondly, that Jesus is greater than the Mosaic Law. And lastly, we see Jesus is great because He gives grace. So consider, first of all, with me, that Jesus is greater than the greatest. We're going to begin and do something a little unusual. Begin in verse 19 and work through our way through this text. 
You remember that we had, our sermon was interrupted last week because of the snow. And so we're going to start here in verse 19, considering that Jesus is the greater than the greatest. We'll move back up to the previous passage. You see, it begins in verse 19 saying, and this was the testimony of John. Now, I, I very much like John. I think he's an incredible man. I, you, of course, know that his birth was surrounded by a miraculous activity as an angel appeared to his father, Zechariah, and said to him, your prayers have been answered. I'm going to give you a, a boy. God has just chosen to give you a son. And just not a son, but he will be the prophet of the Most High God. He will come in order to prepare the way for the Lord. Well, John grew up and he began to live in the wilderness. And because of the vow that he took, he, he never cut his hair. And he was wearing a, a camel hair tunic, which sounds pretty nice, doesn't it? And uh, he's out there in the wilderness and he's eating locusts and honey, the Bible tells us. And so you therefore know he's going to be a little unstable. I mean, if, if all you're eating is bugs and sugar, right, you're going to be a little jittery. And uh, we certainly see this in John's life. All of a sudden, this man about age 30 comes out of the wilderness and begins to preach. Just imagine what that would be like. This hermit emerges barefoot with his homemade camel's hair tunic with a big afro and a massive beard, probably bugs sticking in his beard from all the honey, and he's just shaking because he's loaded up on sugar, and he starts yelling at people, Repent, he says. (laughs) What a sight that would have been to see. Of course, that's a hard ministry, isn't it? That's a difficult message to, to come to people and say, you are in sin, the Lord is coming, in order to get ready you must repent. It's a hard life. But John was a fearless man. He could not be intimidated, could not be bought, could not be threatened. I mean, what are you going to do to John? Right? You're going to take his home, he has none. You're going to take his money, he has none. Take his family, he has none. He has no brothers and sisters that we know, and he never married, has no children. His parents are undoubtedly dead by this time. Since they gave birth to him at such an old age. Well, you take his clothes. You you can if you want to, but you probably don't. Take his food. He's going to find more. I mean, he he cannot be bought. He he just serves God. He does what God tells him to do, which makes him this incredible prophet. As he calls people to repent and he begins to baptize them in the Jordan. And the amazing things is that thousands of people begin to come to him. Not to simply to see the freak show, but actually to be baptized by him. Can you imagine that? What that would be like? Well, what is going on? How is this actually happening? Imagine if someone walked out of the woods of West Virginia and came down here into Loudoun County and started yelling and hollering, repent, repent, and he goes down to the Shenandoah River and thousands of people begin to follow him. I mean, I'm almost tempted to try that. (laughs) You know, don't shower, just let the beard grow and see what happens. They come to him. I think the reason why is that there's this bent-up anticipation that the Messiah is coming. You see, God had spoken to his people throughout the Old Testament again and again, whether it be a judge or prophet or leader or king. But then he goes silent. No warning. No heads up. Hey, I'm not going to speak to you for 400 years. But he just goes silent. And Rome comes and occupies the promised land. And there's this anticipation. When will the Messiah come? There's all these prophets, prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled. Will we come and be faithful to them? And here John walks into this tinderbox of expectation, saying, the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. Of course, this drew the attention of the religious elite, as we read in verse 19, when the Jews sent priests and the Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? 
So the priests and Levites are going to be experts in ritual purification. They, they are coming to see him, right? And they want to know what's going on. In fact, you also see in verse 24, now they have been sent out from the Pharisees. There's some difficulty to translate that verse, but some people think it's the Pharisees are also with them. So you've got priests and Levites and Pharisees, and they're coming to, to check John out. It's this fact-finding mission, if you will. And, and I could understand them. This man's a little bit confusing. And, and if many of you were walking down to a nearby river being baptized by this this somewhat eccentric man, I'd want to go check him out too. And so they come out to try to find out what, what's going on with this man. What, what, why, what is he doing? What, why is he yelling all the time? Why are people coming to him? But, it, but it's more than just that fact-finding mission, isn't it? There's, this is an attempt to reel him in a little bit, right? Uh, this is kind of a show of power, I think. It's like when a, a nation brings its aircraft carrier off a, another nation's uh, shoreline, just saying, simmer down a little bit. We're nearby. We're watching you. And John seems to pick up on this because he's going to be very reserved to even talk about himself and only reveal who he is gradually as they move on in this interrogation. As we see, they begin to ask him, are you the Christ, at least that's implied, for we read in verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. You see, he's being very emphatic here, right? He confessed twice, it says, and did not deny once, I am not the Messiah, I am not the Christ. Well, perhaps he's another end-time figure, for they ask him in verse 21, and then they ask, well, what then, are you Elijah? Which is probably a good guess, because John looked like Elijah. Elijah wore camel's hair garments, or garments of hair, he lived in the wilderness, and he sounded like Elijah. Elijah had a fiery message of repentance. And of course, Elijah was expected to return. Elijah, as you know, was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire, did not die. And the last verses in the Old Testament, the end of the book of Malachi, say Elijah is coming back before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And so they, they think perhaps that he's Elijah. But you notice his answer as we read on in verse 21. He says, I am not. I think what he's saying is I'm not the real Elijah, that he's actually will come back before the Lord returns. I'm not. Well, they continue on in their interrogation as we read. And he said, are you the prophet? They're referring to a specific prophecy that Moses would give them in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15. When Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you and you shall listen to him. And they anticipated that another prophet was coming. That's why they say, are you the prophet, not are you a prophet? It's very specific. And they think, well, we're under Roman occupation now. And Moses led uh, God's people out of the occupation of Egypt, out of their bondage. Perhaps you're the prophet that's going to redeem us from the Roman occupation. His, problem, his answer, as we read at the end of verse 21, no, he's not. Well, now they begin to get a little exasperated in all these denials. He's not telling them who he is. So we read in verse 22. So they said to them, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Who are you then? If you're not all these people, tell us who you are. And it's here we get this great statement from John in verse 23 as he finally explains who he understands himself to be, saying, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And so what he's doing here is he's quoting Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3 to explain who he is. Now, I wonder when I read that, is, is how does he know to quote this verse? I mean, in fact, how does he even know how to be a prophet? I, when, when I want to be a pastor, I, I look at other pastors and I, I talk to other pastors and I go to places called seminary in order to, to be equipped for this ministry. But there are no other prophets for John to look at or speak with and no seminary upon which to go. How does he know that this is who he is? Well, I'm speculating here. This is just a wild guess, but I, I wonder if he learned it from his daddy. 
You, of course, know Zechariah. His father was a priest. Maybe he learned it from his mother. I wonder if his dad sat down with John every day. I'm going to teach you, boy, how to follow God. In fact, the angel came and told me who you are, and I want you to be ready for this mission. I'm going to teach you what it means to be a prophet. I'm going to show you from God's word. I'm going to make sure you are ready. And his dad just poured into him, poured into him. I think about that great honor that I have to pour into my children and all you dads and granddads and moms and grandmas pour into your children the word of God. Dads, the pastor, your home, your little flock in which God has given you. He's giving you children in order that they might know him and love him, that you might raise them to to see him and delight in him. What a great and glorious honor. And I just want to challenge you just for a second here on this Christmas time. What a great opportunity this is if you're not in the habit of having family worship to, to begin to read some of these nativity events and gather your family together and turn off the television for just a little bit and, and read some of these passages. Or maybe at the bedside you can read some of these stories and pray with your children or maybe even sing with them and get a hymnal and get some Christmas carols and you begin to sing as your family. What a great and glorious honor that is. Or... Lay your hand upon your son's head as he lies down and, and say, receive your father's blessing. Have you ever done that? Have you ever poured, spoke a blessing over your son as we see the patriarchs of old doing over their children? What great honor. I trust Zachariah loved his son John, told him about God. And here is, he's bearing the fruit of this as this man follows God faithfully. He says, I'm the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. I wonder if he refers to this place as wilderness because that's what... Uh, the, the faith had become. It had become barren and dry. It had become no longer a matter of the heart and love and faith, but it had become a matter of rules and law keepings and, 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 and box checkings. Often religion degenerates into this. I see this throughout Christianity, by the way, that it's in many places it is no longer a matter of our heart or joy or love. It's a matter of attending church on Sunday so I could check that box to do what I'm supposed to do for God. But there's no love or delight for God at all. And so God will send his messenger to call back his people from the wilderness in which they live to a vibrant and delightful relationship with God. He begins to call. What is he saying? Make straight the way of the Lord. The king is coming. The king is coming. Get ready. The king is coming. In fact, in this day when a king would come into a town, he would send a herald a number of days before to let the townspeople know that he was on his way, that the the king is arriving. And what the town people would do is they would go out in the road and they would clear away the debris and obstacles and fill in the, the ruts and they would make straight the path of the coming king that he might come into this town and they would go line the street as he approached and to receive the king. And John is that herald, isn't he? The king is coming. Get ready. Fill in those ruts of ritual and remove those stones of sin and clear out that debris of depravity in your life. The king is coming and he begins to declare this. He's making them ready for none other, as he says, than the Lord is coming. Who am I? You want to know who I am? I'm a voice. I'm just pointing to Jesus. Don't listen to me. Just listen to me. The Lord is coming. Well, they unfortunately are not satisfied even with that answer. For you see in verse 25, they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? The problem is not with baptism, per se. You notice, by the way, in verse 28, it says, These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. And so there he was in the Jordan River, he was baptizing. And they, they didn't have a problem with baptism, though you don't find baptism in the Old Testament. It developed between the Old Testament and the New Testament, in that 400 years. 
And what, what they did, they would baptize gentle, Gentiles who wanted to become uh, worshipers of Yahweh, worship, uh, become Jews, if you will. And, and they did so because they understood that um, the Jewish people became God's people when he left them, led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea. And they, there uh, in at Sinai, he entered into that covenant with them. And so when the Gentiles baptized, it was a symbol of him passing through that Red Sea in order to become part of God's people as well. And so they, they understood baptism. They didn't have any problem with baptism. But the problem with John's baptism was he wasn't just baptizing Gentiles, but he was baptizing Jews as well. In a sense, he was saying, your Jewishness is not enough for you to be right with God. You too must repent of sin in order to get ready for the coming Lord. And, and if that wasn't bad enough, it was John was, who was administering the baptism. Up to this point, baptism was all self-administered. You would baptize yourself. But here's John who was doing the ba- baptism. And by the way, his baptism was one of repentance, which was totally unheard of in that day. That is a, a, a baptism declaring, I'm turning from my sin, and, and now I'm going to be following God. And so John comes, and he's uh, baptizing about repentance. He's baptizing for Jews, and he's the one who's actually doing baptism. And they want to figure out who this guy is. I said, what authority do you have to do this? Maybe, maybe he's the Christ, they think. Maybe he's Elijah. Maybe he's the prophet. He says, no, I'm not any of those guys. Well, then how is it that you think you are able to do this? And it's at this time that I think John could have uh, begun to give this incredible discourse on, on the baptism that he was giving or maybe begin to talk about the authority that he has been given as a prophet of God. They ought to listen to him and heed him. But he doesn't do any of that. John does like he has all the time. He wants to point away from himself and point to Christ. Look what he says, how he answers their question in verse 26. John answered them, I baptize you with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He says, listen, I'm baptizing with water. You guys are all getting bent out of shape. Big whoop, who cares? There's one coming that you don't even know. And he is so great that I'm not even worthy to take off his shoes. Now, there was a saying in this day that a student, a a disciple, had to do for his teacher anything that a slave had to do for his master except remove his shoe. And John says, there's one coming you don't even know. And I'm not even worthy to actually take off his shoe. I don't even have that worth. Who cares that I'm baptizing? There's one who is coming who is infinitely greater than me. This is what John is pointing to. It's amazing in light of the fact that in this day, John was it. I mean, he was more popular than Jesus. It's like John and the Beatles. And then they're just, everybody loves John. It's all about John. He's the greatest. I mean, think about him. He, he, an angel spoke to his dad. He's a child of a miraculous birth. He was filled with the Holy Spirit while he was still in his mother's womb. He's a prophet of the Most High God. He could have wrote books about how to follow after God or self-denial or solitary contemplation. I mean, John had it going on. And he said, there's one coming. Don't worry about me. There's one coming. He's so much greater than I. I wonder how many self-inflated preachers there are today who would, who would answer that question. No, I'm not the Christ, but I'm glad you noticed the resemblance. Right? <laughs> it's not John. John doesn't care. I don't want to, don't want to talk about me. John's greater than any of them. Jesus said, among, um, uh, among those born of women, none is greater than John. So I'm not, I can't even touch his shoe. He is greater than all. Well, I think it's a good word for us, brothers and sisters. John says, you know, you, you don't even know who's coming. I mean, the game hasn't even... I'm just throwing out the first pitch. 
The game hasn't even started. You think I rub you the wrong way. Wait till he comes. Right? You will get what you pay for. You see, friends, we get so carried away with this person or that. I think we strive to catch a glimpse of this politician or pay hundreds to see a rock star. The news covers night after night the death of an actor. We line up to get authors to sign our books. Uh, In fact, I'll never understand that. I go to these Christian conferences and, and people are lining up the door to get these authors to sign their books. John, of course, never wrote a book, but I think if you would have tried to get his signature, he would have taken your book and hit you on the head of it told you to repent from trying to get his signature. Right? And by the way, if you get signatures in your books, it's, it's, it's okay. It's not a sin. It's weird, but it's, um, it's, it's not a sin. The, the point is, is that we consider all those people that we offer praise to, that we fill our minds with thoughts of, or they occupy our hearts with adoration, or they move our tongue in praise, or we sacrifice that we might know them better, or we rearrange our lives that we might have more of them, or we venerate them after they die, and they are nothing compared to Jesus. He is greater than all of them. He alone is worthy. He alone is great. The apostle was right when he said, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. John says he is the great one. Well, what makes him so great? Well, well, we, we, could, we could spend eternity talking about what makes him so great. But let me just draw your attention to back in, in verse 14 through 18. As we see that Jesus is greater than Mosa- the Mosaic law. In fact, um, you, you, if you were here last week, I, I only, was only able to preach half my sermon. I was supposed to preach this whole paragraph. And so uh, today you're going to get a sermon and a half. So... Merry Christmas. Blessing for you. Here we go. This is good. Um, And so last week, if you were here, we we saw in verse 18, for instance, that the Bible says no one has ever seen God. Like God is unseen. He's invisible because he's a spirit. And therefore we can't see him. The question that it raises is how do we know him? How how are we going to know about him? Well, the answer, if we read on, it says the only God, that's a reference to Jesus, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So Jesus has come to make God known. Well, how does he do that? Well, the answer to that is in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. So the way that Jesus makes God known is by becoming a man and living here upon this earth to show us God, specifically to show us God's glory. That's kind of where we left off last week. But what is it about God that's glorious? When we think about God's glory, what, what, what specifically are we thinking of? Well, I think John has a specific thought in mind as we read on in verse 14. He says, The glory as of the only Son from the Father, here it is, full of grace and truth. And so Jesus comes and he wants to show us God's glory. And and what he wants to show us uh, about God is that God is both true and God is both, and God is gracious. He comes with both hands full. He comes with a handful of truth and he comes with a, a handful of grace. And we look at Jesus' life and he shows us truth over and over again. In fact, when he stood before Pilate, he said, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. He's come, he says, I came into this world to tell you truth. And so when Jesus warned us of hell, he was speaking to us truth. Or when he told us of God's love, he's given us truth or showed us our sin. That was God's truth or described the new birth. It was God's truth or told us to love our enemies or the law is a matter of the heart or God rejoices in repentance. This is all truth when he announced that he is the resurrection and the life, that whoever believes in him, though he die, yet he shall live. He is giving us truth. 
becomes full of truth. That's what He comes to bring. In fact, He even shows us our sin. He says, you are not good. And that's truth. But He also brings grace. And He says, but you are loved. That's grace. Full of grace and truth. You know, we've considered the grace of Jesus in the past, but if you'll just bear with me as we think about it just for a moment. I think of the life that Jesus lived and the grace that he's shown, and it seems like from the beginning to end it is just covered with grace, full of grace. You see it when he offered his compassion to the poor, his love for the lonely, or his tears for the mourning, his affection to the prostitute, his mercy to a traitor dying on the cross. That's grace. When he welcomed the elderly or esteemed the children or elevated women or honored the enslaved or sought after Gentiles or accepted the outcasts and the reject, that's grace. When he healed the sick and liberated the demonized and gave sight to the blind and gave strength to the lame and gave words to the mute and cleansed the leper and raised the dead, that's grace. When he explained that he would die to bear the penalty for our sin, that he has come to pay a ransom for sinners, that is grace. He came to show us that God is both true and that God is gracious. But the question I think that that rises is, well, why does He have to become a man to do this? I mean, couldn't He just come down from heaven and and lived as God? We know he, He ate with Abraham and walked with Adam and spoke with Ezekiel. Why does He have to put on flesh? Why does He have to become one of us if He wants to show us grace and truth? Well, I'm only left to conclude that the great pinnacle of this display of grace and truth is the cross upon which he died. The cross upon which we sang of. You see, he became flesh not simply to live. He, he was doing that before he became flesh. He became flesh in order to die. That, that the word became flesh so that the death of Jesus Christ would be made possible. You see, it's in the cross of Jesus that the grace of God and the truth of God shine in brilliance like a million suns. His grace is shown, but it is shown according to truth. This grace is not weak and sentimental and and shallow grace. It is God-exalting, blood-spilling, justice-keeping grace. That in the God, that God in in the cross was being gracious to us and true to himself at the same time as Jesus would would die for us and God would put the sin that we have committed upon himself and, and punish Jesus for your sin and your sin and your sin and my sin. God was being true to his holiness and his justice and his righteousness. But at the same time, he was being gracious to you and you and you as Christ was taking all that sin upon him. It is full of grace and truth. There in the cross of Jesus Christ, it is the brilliant display of the crucified Word made flesh that we see fullness of grace and truth. In fact, John likes this idea so much that he repeats it here in verse 17. He says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's interesting. He begins to start talking about Moses here. Just out of the blue, he introduces Moses and the law. And I don't think he's talking about Moses and the law because Moses and his law are contrary to grace, certainly not contrary to truth. I think the law was an embodiment of grace. I think it 
was a witness to grace, was a witness to truth. I think it all pointed to Christ. In fact, you read the Gospel of John. You could, in fact, I had a number of verses. We don't can't look at them all this morning for sake of time. But John five, for instance, Jesus says, "If you believed in Moses, you would believe in me, for he wrote of me." So the law of Moses wasn't contrary to Jesus, wasn't contrary to grace and truth. It was actually pointing to him. It showed us the glory of God in his grace and truth. But it was just a shadow of it. See, Christ has come and he's the full embodiment of it. As John says repeatedly that he is full of this grace and truth, this display. In fact, you think about Moses, you think about a man who, who most desperately wanted to see God's glory, didn't he? In fact, if there's anyone who has ever said that they could see God up to this point, it would have been Moses. The Bible says in Exodus 33 that the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. I mean, he had, he knew God better than anyone. And yet, it was even after that time that, that Moses is on the mountain with God and he says to God, will you please show me your glory? And God agrees. He says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name. But Moses, he said, you cannot Look upon me and live. If you stare headlong into the blinding glory of God, you will become obliterated. And so God, out of great kindness, put Moses in in this rocky cleft and and he covered him up there as he passed by him. And and there he kind of revealed to Moses just just the trailing edge of his glory, just the the shadow, the, the afterglow of the glory of God. See, I don't think he's contrasting Jesus with Moses in the sense that the law wasn't a gracious gift. It is, or that Moses didn't know about the glory of God. He, he knew about it better than any of us did. But he only saw, saw the afterglow. Jesus comes to give us the fullness of it. Moses needs to be protected from it. You need no protection from it, for your sins have been washed away by the blood of Christ. And so in verse 18, he says, no one's ever seen God. Even Moses, who said, show me your glory, only saw the backside. But what do we see? The only God, that is the Son of God, the only begotten God, who is where? You see that? At the Father's side. Literally, is at his chest or in his lap. In other words, he is intimate with God. He knows God better than, than anyone. He who was in the Father's lap has shown us God. We don't get to see his backside. We get to see him through Jesus. And when we do, we see that God is true and God is gracious. That's what he's come to show us. But the amazing thing is that he hasn't just simply come to show us this. He hasn't come simply to stock your head with information so you have facts about God, about God's truth, about God's grace. He has actually come that you might receive that grace. As we consider lastly and quickly that Jesus is great because he gives grace. We see this here in verse 16. It's a verse we skipped over. It says, And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. You see, the word of flesh, the word became flesh in order to be gracious to us. And, and here the emphasis falls just on grace, doesn't it? Truth kind of falls away, even though that's important. The emphasis falls on grace upon grace. I just love that phrase, grace upon grace. It reminds me of the seashore. I don't trust many of you have gone to the ocean and maybe you waded out in the ocean and the water's covering your feet or maybe up to your knees and, and you feel a wave come and hit you. Maybe you even have to take a step back and you regain yourself. And then what, what comes next? Another wave. And then, and then another wave. And what's amazing uh, about, about these waves is they keep coming. They never stop. They're, they're inexhaustible. Th- that is, just because one wave has come, it doesn't mean there's one less wave out there. 
Right? It's not like a, a set number of waves, and once all those waves have come, then there'll be no more waves left. It's inexhaustible. It'll keep coming as long as there is sea and, and an ocean. It's just wave upon wave upon wave. And I think it's a beautiful picture when we think about what have we received from Jesus. But grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, that which is inexhaustible, he has covered you with grace. I appreciate what our brother Martin Luther said about this passage some hundreds of years ago. When he said, just as the sun is not darkened by the whole world enjoying its light, and could indeed light up ten worlds, just as a hundred thousand lights might be lit from one light and not detract from it, just as a learned man is able to make thousands others learned, and the more he gives, the more he has, so is Christ our Lord, an infinite source of all grace. So that if the whole world would draw enough grace from it to make all the world angels, Yet it would not lose a drop, for the fountain always runs over, full of grace. In fact, you see that there in verse 16, don't you? It says, and from his fullness. Right? He's not scraping from the bottom. Let me see if I have any grace left over for you. He is overflowing with grace into our lives. Fullness of grace, a never-ending grace from God. He has given us grace upon grace. And I think this Christmas he wants to treat you to grace upon grace. I wonder if we would do well to consider the waves of past grace in which He has given us. He, Christian, who has called you and put life in your spirit and put faith in your heart. Is that not grace? He who has removed your guilt or cast away your sin or cleansed your conscience. Is that not past grace? You who are once an enemy have been made his friend, once in bondage have been set free, once a lawbreaker have been declared innocent, once an orphan has been made a son, a daughter. Wave upon wave upon wave of past grace. Or maybe we can consider present grace, the waves of present grace that fall upon us even as we draw breath in this room. That he has promised to be kind to you and strengthen you and to work all things together for your good. Or that He holds you in your hand and will never let you go. Or He'll guide your path or give you nothing you cannot endure. No temptation in which you cannot withstand. That He has poured out His love upon you this very moment. He has adopted you into His family and treats you as a son or daughter. He has given you His Spirit. That He has given you, Jesus promised, my hope. I've given you my joy. I've given you my peace. He has invited you to His church, given you His Word, welcomed you into His presence today. Wave upon wave of grace upon grace. But that's not all. There's grace yet to come. Maybe we do well to consider the waves of future grace. That one day you will be glorified. That all sin will be washed away from you. Never to be tempted or sin again. That your body will be resurrected from the dead. That you will be given life everlasting. And in that day he will send away all pain and All suffering and all misery and all war and all death and all enmity will be washed away that you will inherit a world, a world that is waiting to be transformed into something of beauty and majesty and wonder that you've never experienced. And there upon this new world and this new body with this new heart and this new soul, you shall live forever and ever with all the redeemed, the angels themselves, and even the triune God. You shall that day see face to face. Wave upon wave of grace upon grace shall come upon you. He wants to bowl you over in the ocean of His grace. Perhaps we can think about that 
grace in which we receive this Christmas season. Spend some time aside to contemplate what is it that I have received from Christ because of that, the reality that He has come for us. I trust you have received it. Perhaps there are some here that have not received God's grace. They don't know what this grace is like. They haven't seen His glory in fact, the whole point of this book that John wrote is that so we might, we who did not see Jesus walk this earth and speak and, and perform these mighty acts might see Him through this Word and might behold His beauty and might receive the grace in which He offers us. He offers us all grace this morning, every one of us, for He has died upon a cross to take sin upon Himself to pay for that penalty as our substitute. And three days later, He rose from the dead. And the Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It is not a matter of works and law-keeping and righteousness, and if my good works outweigh my bad works, that will do you no good before God. It doesn't matter if you're a good person or a bad person. In fact, I would suggest we're all bad people, just different degrees of badness. He has come to die for our badness, but He demands that you receive this gift of grace, that you bow your knee to Him as King and Lord. And when you do, this grace begins to bowl you over and will do so for eternity. Of course, many missed it in his day, didn't they? They didn't see it. They didn't want it. They didn't want anything to do with him. They watched him love, saw his mighty works, and they still missed the glory of God. In fact, they ended up killing him, nailing him to the cross. And it's because of that crucifixion, because he died, that we are able to receive this grace. So now we come to our time in our service where we'll actually remember that blood-bought grace, that body-broken purchased grace for us as we remember this supper meal. I, I like this verse here in, in verse 18 when it says he was at the Father's side or in the Father's lap. It, it reminds me of the man who wrote this book, John the Beloved. I don't know if you remember the story at the Lord's Supper when they were taking this first Passover meal, if you will, and where was John reclining? But the Bible tells us that he was reclining in the lap of Jesus. What intimacy he had with the Word made flesh. What closeness that He had. It's the closeness that He offers all of us. Intimacy that He offers all of us that we all too may put our head upon His chest because He has died for us and broken His body for us. So in a moment as these plates are passed by and you hold the elements in your hand and you wait for us all to be able to eat together, maybe you can, can meditate on the intimacy and the fellowship that Jesus has purchased for you through His birth and ultimately through His death and His resurrection. Maybe you can contemplate the grace in which you have received from Him and let your soul feast upon these truths that He has given to us. If you're visiting with us here this morning, we're happy that you're here, but we do want you to know that the communion meal we're about to partake is only for Christians. And so if you're not a Christian, we simply would ask if you do us the favor when the plate is passed by you, just take the plate and discreetly pass it to the person next to you. The Bible tells us very specifically that this is a meal for those who have received Christ as their Savior. For those of us who have bowed our knee to Jesus, love Him in our hearts, and trust Him in our minds, we do want to give us an opportunity to actually speak to Him silently for a moment. Perhaps there's something you need to talk to Him about, some sin that you need to deal with. We, of course, know this is a meal for sinners, not for perfect people. In fact, it's a celebration of grace for sinners. But yet, we don't want to come to this meal casually. And so maybe you can speak to him even now as we pray.